You are listening to NYC Radio Live. David Ellenbogen here. Great to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. You will not be let down. This is a fascinating conversation with Paul Winter. Paul Winter is a seven-time Grammy Award winner. He's got 40 albums under his belt, toured in something like 50 countries or more. And um, a lot of people know him as the spirit behind the solstice celebrations at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. But uh, more importantly, you'll, you'll see that he is a human being that seems to know what his mission in life is and his view of what music is is extremely broad and it includes even the birds and the whales and the wolves and that all became part of his story and his broad view of of music led him to work with cultures beyond what was considered a friendly territory politically and the, the music of the Balkans and the music of Brazil all makes its way into his music. So anyway, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Also, if you're curious, there is a, another archived conversation, my first chat with Paul Winter a few years back at my old apartment and um, all different stuff. I think uh, you might want to look that up at nycradiolive.com org and yeah hope you enjoy here's my chat with paul winter thanks for listening yeah we had a nice chat last time yeah and um i i, I got more questions for you what's your take on how place influences music big part of my it, uh, adventures over the years has has exactly been that that inquiry um what would an experience let's say of the grand canyon uh evoke in us musically and um in in that particular example i went to uh fairly great lengths doing four river rafting <laughs> recording expeditions through the canyon to um to just see if what would uh, what would come from it? Um, because if you're, my feeling was that if you're in a, an exalted state from the inspiration of being in some place in nature, perhaps you might play uh, in a special way. Um, and it was it's an interesting uh, it, it, it kind of when I reflect on um, both aspects of, of, of um, those adventures. Uh, in some cases, we would, uh, and, and in three of those four trips, I took uh, the whole consort with us on these, uh, these rafts through the uh, three-week expeditions through the three, 290 miles of the canyon that the Colorado River traverses. And we would play each day in different places. And Sometimes we would intend to create a piece that did something that, that evoked a certain place, and it almost always failed. Um, and we would listen and say, "Well, that doesn't that doesn't say anything about it." And then it turned out that uh, Glenn Velez and uh, Paul Halley and I went into the cathedral uh, at one point and did uh, some free improvisations. And one of them absolutely evoked the the image of Grand, Grand Canyon sunrise, um, without without our having any thought about it. Um, so this is a kind of rambling answer, uh, or not really an answer to your question. It's just a, a further um, kind of musing on that that um, that, that experience. 
I would think, uh, I know that it, in, in an acoustic space, uh, like the cathedral, it has a huge effect on, um, on, on my playing. And I play very, very differently because you have such a long reverb. And any note that you play has a magic to it because of the acoustics. So you, it's, it's a tr- tremendous um, enhancement of your sound. And so I tend to play more slowly and be glad for simple melodies, uh, whereas in a dead space, you might be inclined to think that you should play something virtuosic in order to be uh, uh, you know, doing something of interest. Yeah, and as well, you, you also kind of made a, a conscious choice to get out of the club environment. Playing in... Small nightclubs is is my idea of hell. Um, <laughs> it's it's like playing in a shoebox stuffed with cotton. Uh, and uh, of course, these days, sound systems can mitigate that, and so you could probably go in any place and with the right reverb feel okay. Um, but it was more than the acoustics in the clubs. It was the idea that you were basically a liquor salesman, that you were there to entertain people who, who, who came to, uh, to drink and um, have a good time, and that uh, uh, it, it just wasn't... Uh, it, it, it didn't have the kind of um, encouragement to, to our playing that you, you get in a concert. Right, or a canyon. <laughs> or a canyon. Yeah. So uh, going back a little bit, so I understand um, that you were uh, kind of scooped up by this titan of music, John Hammond, who people may know of being the guy who, quote unquote, discovered Count Basie and Dylan and Aretha Franklin and Benny Goodman and Charlie Christian and uh, many others, countless others. I think Bruce Springsteen even. Um, did you have much interactions with, with John Hammond? And, and what John, were your impressions? Yeah. Well, John was the judge at the Intercollegiate Jazz Festival in Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. in May of 1961. And um, my sextet, my bebop sextet from college, we were at Northwestern University then, uh, had... Um, entered uh, a recording. This was a festival, unlike the Notre Dame Jazz Festival, which is the most long, the longest running and the most famous of the college festivals. Um, all the groups don't come uh, there as they do at Notre Dame for three days. Um, they all send in recordings, and they pick the five they like best as the, the, to be the finalists who then were invited to come to Washington. And to play, each group played for 15 minutes in the first half of the concert, and in the second half was Dizzy's quintet. And the judges were Dizzy and John Hammond. And our group won that festival and got a recording contract with Columbia, which was one of the the prizes, um, which really totally changed the direction of my life. I decided not to go to law school that fall. told him I'd hold my place, but I'm going to take a year off and try this music thing. And um, things just developed from there in a, an amazing way. Um, we, that was in, in May. In December, John came to Chicago, where we were living, and recorded our first album. And um, over the next two years, we recorded um, five more albums for Columbia. So we we were working with John all the mm-hmm. time, and, and did, uh, did, yeah, what, what kind of person was he? What, what did you? Oh, John was pure enthusiasm. Uh, Denny Zeitlin, the, the pianist, uh, my friend, who I also had gotten a recording contract for with John. All we always joked that whenever you'd see John, almost the first thing out of his mouth would be "Great, everything was great." He was he was total. Uh, uh, very positive guy. Very uh, he loved jazz. I mean, he had been, um, as you know, a fan from the Vanderbilt family and grew up in wealth and uh, kind of went another direction from 
the, the people in his social strata and dedicated his life to jazz and justice for, for black people uh, from, this is in the 30s. And uh, he was a, a, a deeply committed guy to, to, to the music and to, to, and, to, uh, and to humanity. I mean, he was a, a great inspiration. Wow. And so you didn't get the sense, or, or did you get the sense, oh, man, this guy is, is uh, some kind of wealthy patrician? Or, no, 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 or, no, no. No, no, no. Not at all. I mean, I mean he, 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 he spoke uh, in the manner of, let's say, his class, mm-hmm. uh, which was, I mean, he was, but it was not at all patronizing or... Uh, you know, he, he 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 was very down to earth and um, loved. I mean, he had spent a lot of time in the civil rights um, issues, and I mean, he had been working on all that in the, way before it became uh, so so prominent in the in the sixties. And uh, he he was at home in in all of the the, the jazz clubs and the places in Harlem, and uh, so. No, he, right. he, 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 was, he was a real mentor, and one of the great services he did for me was to, um, to, to, to open my musical realm to um, folk music um, in the early 60s. I'm sorry, in early 63, um, we were talking about what would be the subject of our next album, which was, I guess, going to be our fourth, and because folk music had become uh, kind of vogue in, in that time, um, the idea came up to do uh, jazz interpretations of folk songs. And I didn't know a thing about folk music except for that, the, the, the different cultures in Latin America that we had heard in the, during the State Department tour that our sextet did in 1962. And uh, he said, well, look, I'm, I'm recording Pete Seeger at Carnegie Hall next week. Why don't you come with me and sit in the control booth? And this was uh, in um, early June, 63. Um, and that was the album We Shall Overcome, which became the biggest selling album Pete ever did. And it was a, an extraordinary um, experience. And, and hearing Pete for the first time was, uh, for me, a revelation. Um, and... Uh, so I, that wouldn't have happened if it hadn't, hadn't been for John. Wow, wow. And that's, that, you know, when I think of the idea that you were playing bebop early on, which kind of has a reputation of being a little bit of an insider's music, you know. It's, it's not something that... Um, is it was like almost kind of developed for musicians by musicians initially. Maybe I'm as opposed to uh, the most uh, music that tries to cast the widest net. Um, maybe you disagree with that assessment, but but it seems like that that you know this this opening up into to folk music really changed changed your orientation uh, permanently. Well, it was just one new facet uh, of the, of the uh, you know the ever growing uh, complexity of of uh, music and the, the world's music that I had be, been fascinated with. Um, mm-hmm. it, um, it 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 felt like a natural progression. I mean, it the, the, for me the, the the great theme of jazz is perhaps also the greatest theme of our country, and that is welcome. And that was the feeling that I got from the big band music that I grew up on in the 40s, the jazz scene in Chicago when I came there to go to college in the late 50s, and really from all the jazz, the various genres that that have uh, moved me. Uh, I mean, there's... There's also some music that that I feel is uh, fairly introverted or or just not you know kind of excluding, but the great majority of it for me was uh, you know very simpatico and um, 
so folk music was as well. And um, really what it was, more for me, what opened up the world was, was Brazil. Um, and and in, in the next year, 64, I went back to Brazil where we, we had visited it for a month in our State Department tour in 62, and I was enthralled with the, the, the diversity of music there and also with Bossa Nova, which was just blossoming. So I went back in 64 and spent most of the next year living in, in Rio and recording with that music, and that, that, that really made the major shift. Mm. Uh, in in my own playing and in the kind of ensemble I wanted to have, because I, I I kind of left the jazz scene after '63, and um, wanted to then after I was in Brazil have a different kind of ensemble that would also play quiet music. We everything we played in the sextet was loud, even ballads, and nobody used amplification in those days. So it was it was a loud, brash kind of music, and I loved it, and I still love it. But the um, João Gilberto's singing and guitar really had a, a kind of epiphanic um, uh, effect on me. And uh, also, I heard cello a lot in Brazil with the the music of Villa Lobos, um, all of the diverse percussion, percussion. And so I came back from Brazil with the the, the aural vision for the consort. Well, it's so interesting. You know, I'm, I'm always excited when I get a chance to meet someone who is at kind of a, a, a birth of a music that be, that has like solidified into an archetype as Bossa Nova has, you know. So I guess you, you, you got to spend time with people like Joao and Vinicius de Moraes and these, these guys were... Well, I met I met most everybody in that it was a, an amazing sort of creative crucible, and, and and it was a very kind of small uh, demographic, and it was really for a short time. I mean, it emerged in the late fifties, out of the time of the the music uh, Orfeo Negro, Black Orpheus, and by sixty four, sixty five, when I when I was there, it was. Um, it was kind of over in terms of the community, uh, but uh, Vinicius was very welcoming, and he did the liner notes for one of the two albums I did there. Um, I never spent much time with Joao. I, I, I don't know who has. I mean, Joao's, he's the most introverted person that I've ever known about, uh, but it didn't matter. For me, uh, I loved you know, what he did musically, and that was really the, that was the great um, key that opened the door to that that new genre, uh, but I there were quite a few people I did get 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 close with. I did an album with Carlos Lira, and I just went back there in February and did uh, a reunion, a series of concerts with Carlos, who's now eighty five. Wow. Um, the album was called Sound of Ipanema, and we did all of that music with a, an amazing sextet of. Brazilian players, and uh, it was it, it, it was wonderful. Wow! So so folk music and Brazilian music entered your your sound, and 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 this kind of that that uh, the dynamics and, and softness of of, of Brazilian of, of bossa nova specifically, because I guess most well, I wouldn't Brazilian say that music... folk music entered our sound because we didn't okay. sing. And right. um, we didn't play, although we did an album called Jazz Meets the Folk Song that grew out right. of that experience. Um, we, we, I don't think, ever played those pieces again. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the, the ethnic music of so many countries uh, has been alluring to me, especially Africa, um, but, but also the Middle East, and I've spent a lot of time there, and... Uh, uh, Celtic music, uh, I mean, the world is a kind of smorgasbord of music. And uh, it was a tremendous uh, boon to get to do the tour that we did for the State Department through 23 countries of Latin America and realize that there's a much bigger world out there of music and uh, beyond jazz, but that, that really 
for me embraces jazz and uh, the, the, the labels get in the way and so we've tried over the years to kind of sidestep them um, and uh, just sort of follow our, uh, our musical instincts as to what, what, what felt uh, uh, alluring. Right, and and at what point did uh, you start, you know, getting behind beyond the realm of uh, human music, <laughs> and and it started exploring the the bird calls and and, and in, wolf songs. In May of '68, um, there was a lecture on whale songs at Rockefeller University by Dr. Roger Payne, the biologist who had um, recorded the whales and discovered that they sing these long, complicated patterns and then repeat them exactly. Uh, it's an extraordinary uh, phenomenon. And um, I, I, I just heard it through a friend in New York about this lecture, and I couldn't imagine what, what, you know, what he was talking about. Whale songs, what is that, you know, what's that about? And that was a, another uh, life-changing evening for me. Uh, because I was very taken with the the uh, the poignant beauty of their singing, which um, goes through a huge range. It goes off the top end of our hearing and also off the bottom end. And a lot of it's swooping. They don't kind of land on the stair steps of notes like we humans do, um, not often. Um, but it felt to me like a... I don't know, like a cross between uh, uh, elephant cries and Miles Davis. Hmm. Uh, it, it 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 had a it absolutely had uh, the poignance of blues, and I found that over the years, in almost all cultures and in many creatures, the yearning quality in their in their voices, and um, I've come to feel that it's a, a characteristic of. Uh, a sort of universal characteristic of life. Uh, all life forms are yearning for uh, connection, maybe to other members of their species, or yearning for who, who knows what. We'll never know what it is for the other species. But it's, um, it's a quality that I, I find very uh, kindred. Uh, and certainly there's been a lot of that in jazz and uh, blues, and, but there, <laughs> there are variations of the blues everywhere, and that night I realized that, that it was also in, in other creatures, so that I've always said that, that that night kind of opened the door for me to what I now call the greater symphony of the earth. And, and was this, was it the sound that... that that brought you into environmental kind of causes, or did it? Was it the other way around, or did it just all kind no, of no? It, well, it, it, it it's um, it, I mean, it, it all was. It, it has all been incremental. Um, the, that night, I the, the other amazing reality that I experienced that night was to learn from Roger Payne's lecture that I mean, he demonstrated the whales. Uh, he, he he played the recordings. He showed uh, on a screen the spectrographs of two uh, recordings of whale songs that lasted about each about thirty minutes, and they were almost verbatim the same. It was com as complex as a let's say a Beethoven symphony, and then they repeat the entire complicated song exactly, and all of the males, because it's the male whales who sing. All of the whales in that, uh, the males in that area are singing the same song in, in, in that season. The next year, you come back and put your hydrophone in the water, and they've got a new song, and they're all singing it. So that was astounding wow. to realize. Um, and then to hear that they were being exterminated by a dying industry that was trying to crank out the last profits it, 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 it could... Um, whaling to make products, every one of which could be made more cheaply from sources on land. Uh, and so it, it was absurd to think that these amazing creatures 
we're, um, we're, we're going to be possibly wiped out. And so I, I kind of became an activist that night. I, I remember going up to Roger afterwards and speaking briefly to him and just said, if there's anything I could ever do uh, to, to help out in this cause, I, I would, uh, I'd love to know. And so uh, eventually, over the next year or two, I became quite good friends with Roger, who was a cello player. And he was interested in the fact that I, we had cello in the consort. And uh, he uh, let me have a number of tapes, uh, and I looked for ways that we could incorporate uh, some of the, the, the whales, the, the whale voices into our music. And that led to our being um, invited to play at different environmental benefit events, uh, wildlife conferences and things, and uh, eventually to get to go out and be with whales in the Pacific with Greenpeace after we did a benefit for Greenpeace in Vancouver. And they, uh, after the concert, a couple of the guys said, well, we're going out on a training run tomorrow morning uh, from Vancouver Island. Would you like to come with us? And uh, I said, oh, boy, would I? And so uh, they put myself and a photographer in a small Zodiac raft and we floated among the, the gray whales for uh, a couple of hours, and that, that was fantastic. I mean, the gray whales are not vocal, um, but um, they're, they're uh, surfacing, they're feeding in that area. And to, to be near one when they, they surface to, uh, to, to breathe and blow, uh, which is an exhale, uh, is uh, unforgettable because they're... I mean, these whales were only like 60 feet long, but, um, you know, that in itself is uh, five times as big as an elephant. And uh, so um, the, the same kind of sequence happened for me with wolves. Um, a fellow came to the middle school near the town where I was living then in Connecticut, um, and did a program with these two wolves. And um, it was a very impressive program. And we learned in that from, from him that the wolves are not a threat to humans. Um, and that, again, just as with the whales, you have the Jonah story. So a lot of people think that if you fall in the ocean, a whale would swallow you. <laughs> um, people came from Europe with the feeling that the, that the wolf was the the dragon of the forest, and uh, and there's never been an authenticated case of a healthy wolf attacking a human in North America. Uh, and so they fascinated me uh, at a wildlife conference in um, St. Louis where we played. I met a guy named Fred Harrington who was a wolf biologist who worked up in northern Minnesota where the last, at that time, the last surviving population of timber wolves was living in a narrow strip of habitat near the Canadian border. And um, he invited me to come up and go howling with him. And uh, we would go out at night into the Superior National Forest and howl. And um, most of the time, not hear anything. But once in a while, uh, on a lucky night, we would, we would hear a kind of lonely voice begin to rise into the night from uh, fairly far away. And then the others would join in, and you'd hear this magnificent chorus. Um, that, um, that, was, that was a high point for me. And so the wolves then became part of my, my life. And um, once you have entered nature, it's like the whole of nature is, in a sense... Your 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 home, or if not that, your your field of play, and uh, it, it, maybe it's similar to getting attracted to music when you're a kid, and uh, you hear one kind of music, and you before long you you hear others, and you realize that there's a lot of different music, and uh, and 
that I think often the whole, uh, 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 not not all music, but a, a lot of music can be uh, of interest to you. Wow. So that's, the, I mean, I can imagine that's like a, it's so thrilling to make that connection when 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 you uh, actually get a, a wolf to respond or a, a bird to respond, um, and and I would also think that like when you when your music starts transcending these traditional boundaries and you're you're un, you know concentrating on on the glissando of whales or on, on the movements of, of the wolf call, suddenly a lot of artificial categories start falling away. You know, the idea that that, that bebop is so different <laughs> from swing when you're in, incorporating uh, uh, whale calls into your sonic worldview um, starts seeing like a, an, an artificial division. And, and it's seen that, is this your, your wide scope? Do you think that's why I know that another important thing you did was uh, work work with a Russian group before the Cold War ended? You know, is there some connection there in terms of just getting beyond traditional boundaries and and divisions? Yeah, I'm trying. I'm I'm thinking of an analogy to maybe food um if you 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 like uh, if one likes various kinds of food and then you go to wherever italy you go on a on a trip somewhere else and you you sample their food and you think wow that's really amazing uh you could do that all over the world and probably in most cultures find new uh, culinary des- delights. Um, it, it absolutely the same thing. I mean, the uh, the allurement to soulful sounds, which to me, jazz. Uh, though I loved the symphonic instruments early on growing up, it was the way that jazz players played instruments with a with a personal kind of voice that most uh, was alluring to me. Um, as a kid, and you, if you hear the the, the voices of the, uh, the the Slavic singers, the uh, the 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 choruses where they're singing in these amazing tight harmonies that you can't really even transcribe, um, and they're singing with a uh, the power of a like Stan Kenton's brass section uh, because the, the the music is is all a cappella because drums were outlawed by the Orthodox Church in the 17th or 16th century, so the people learned to, uh, you know, to sing, uh, to, to do all their music, basically singing and, and and dancing, and so their 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 feet come into it. Their the, the, the rhythm of the of the dancing is sometimes part of it, uh, but those voices um, they just completely. Uh, you know, it just got to my soul. It was definitely a, a feeling of the earth. I felt, and uh, and it, literally there, I mean, because the music evolved outdoors. It's one of the reasons I think why the the people have these amazing horn-like voices that project a long way, and uh, a lot of it's without vibrato. So it's. It, it it it's very to me. It has a lot of analogy to uh, you know to the big band uh, in jazz. Mm. Interesting, yeah, yeah, and 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 you were able to to hear all those kind of microtonal kind of harmonies and and that kind of stuff. You were able to, to no, get in no, there. No, no, we we <laughs> uh, we. This ensemble that, that you're referring to, the Dmitry Pekovsky ensemble, we were booked with them on a concert at Moscow University in September of 1986 at the, at the end of a tour that we did of the then, the, the then Soviet Union. And I had had 
an experience with Balkan choral singing, which is in the kind of a similar Slavic tradition, from an album called The Music of Bulgaria in 1963 uh, yeah. uh, by the Philippe Kutev Ensemble. And I love these amazing close harmonies and, and, and the general texture of the, 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 the choral sound. It was not the sweet kind of suit and tie sort of harmony singing that you get from European and American choruses, um, much of which can be very, very beautiful, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's a kind of a much more indoor sound to me. Uh, this felt raw and wild and amazingly uh, artistic, and it just had everything that that we love in um, in jazz with the the the, the harmonies, the, the 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 voices, and the uh, and the melodies, uh, uh, and it was dynamic rhythmically, and so we. Um, we just fell in love with this group and talked about making a uh, uh, an album together, which uh, everybody thought was impossible at that time. But uh, in the next year, things opened up very fast over there. In 87, we went back and recorded them doing just what they do. Um, Paul Halley, um, my colleague and great keyboardist and composer, wrote two or three pieces for them to sing um, and uh, that we could, uh, in which we could accompany them, uh, which we then recorded with them at that time. But mostly what we did with the 30 or so pieces of theirs we recorded was spend months uh, improvising with them to find if we could create com um, complementary uh, pieces where we could do what we do, full tilt, at the same time they do what they do. But we weren't trying to imitate that, them or do play their harmonies, um, but really trying to just find something that would be uh, uh, a, a, a kind of a companion piece. Mm. And um, so that's, that's what we... Uh, that from, from all of that came the album that we called Earthbeat in 88. Nice. Well, so what should we expect? I know this is, uh, what, what number solstice concert is, is coming up now? It's the 24th uh, summer solstice celebration. All right. And you got something uh, special lined up, I'm sure? Well, we have a, a suite of, of, of new music for dawning. Um, with uh, a, a kind of unique uh, summer winter consort <laughs> with, um, uh, with euphonium, which we're using for the first time, which is one of the lesser-known brass instruments that has a beautiful, warm sound. A um, young player from Colorado named Clark Goring. Um, Bansuri, the flute of India, which you know, um, I'm sure uh, Steve Gorn, who's a master, oh, great. Uh, this uh, instrument is studied there since uh, 50 years ago. I mean, over the 50 years, he's been back many times to India. Um, and Jeff Holmes uh, is a, an extraordinary pianist. He's been head of the jazz studies uh, department at UMass Amherst for the last three decades, and he's a titanic uh, player. And um, Tim Brumfield playing the cathedral's organ and John Hadfield who is uh, a uh, amazing percussionist who um, like uh, in the tradition of Colin Walcott who played with the consort uh, early on and then Glenn Velez uh, he, he's created a unique alternative uh, percussion set uh, very different than a trap set with the kick drum and the tom-toms. It's uh, full of diverse ethnic percussion instruments. And uh, he's a wizard. And so uh, it's it's a new ensemble, and we'll be doing uh, new music. And, and um, kind of we, we approach this event as a, 
as an opportunity for discovery. We we try different combinings of um, the instruments, uh, a lot of solos with players stationed in different parts of the cathedral, and uh, it's a, a continuous stream of, of music for uh, 90 minutes beginning in total darkness, and then about the halfway point around 4, 5, uh, 5.15. We started at 4.30 a.m., and around 5.15, the stained glass windows gradually illuminate, and it's, it's, a, it's a very unique kind of journey for the listener because we don't often spend time in total darkness listening, and it's, it's almost a, like a revelation, a whole new realm of, um, uh, of experiencing can, can uh, open up in your imagination. Um, and uh, there's, we, we've tried to make the event as organic as it can be. There's no sound system, there's no lighting, no staging, no narration. Uh, just uh, just this uh, ever-changing stream of, of, of sound. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's unusual. Many people have never experienced this kind of a deep listening adventure. Yeah, and, and I guess a lot of your listeners, they're not necessarily... Uh, just people about music. It seems like you get a really wide range of people attracted to to this kind of your your events. Is, is it, it's true. It, it's true. Uh, there are people with a sense of adventure, and um, it, it it it's a wide gamut. I don't know how I could describe. Uh, the, the different kinds of folks who come. I mean, some people come from quite a distance uh, around the country uh, it, because it, it, the cathedral itself is a is an amazing sort of destination place to come to. Um, it, it's uh, in a way when you go in there um, and there's not a lot of light, you you can't really see the the ceiling, and you feel like you're almost in a canyon. Uh, and um, the thing, one thing I like about it very much is the the sense of a shared journey that people have um, in the in that space. Um, and and the word welcome absolutely applies to the cathedral, as as, as I said before. I, I thought it did to you know to so much of jazz and so much of the the. Um, uh, traditional musics around the world, and um, I think people uh, just the effect of being in the cathedral is is uh, profound. And sound is the perhaps the most uh, effective thing in the cathedral. Talking is always problematic because it's kind of hard to really hear people well when you have a seven-second reverberation, as the cathedral does. And um, although talking is certainly still used very much as it is in, in any church, um, I feel that music has a, a very special role there. And uh, we've been very lucky to be have been given this forum uh, years ago. and to uh to be able to do these these events that are of course totally secular it has nothing to do with any kind of a um you know evangelical or whatever uh you know a liturgical aspect right and and so now this is it's kind of interesting that your your life is kind of uh bookended twice a year by the solstices you know you kind of <laughs> and that they're in this, you know, magnificent place, uh, which, you know, a lot of these churches are usually built on areas that were previously considered powerful spots, you know, as that mm -hmm. is at the top of uh, Morningside Heights. But um, 
it's it's kind of interesting to me have have your uh, the 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 rhythms of your life are kind of transcending the traditional daylight savings time Christian calendar and 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 the big event for you is the darkest <laughs> darkest night or the longest day. I mean, do you, do you feel like you're kind of in this natural cycle, maybe more than the rest of us, or, or that it's informing your music? Or it's very interesting that you uh, recount all that and and sort of paint that picture. I don't think of it that often in that way, but you're right. It's um, like these are, these are the two major milestones of the year and have been for millennia for at least people in all the northern hemisphere of, um, of our earth. Um, possibly the southern too, but the great majority of the population has been in the north. And uh, until very recently, and I'm speaking in, in a large perspective, I'd say until the, the, the last few hundred years maybe, for the many, many thousands of years of our human journey, these were the the times of year when they had the major rituals because uh, people didn't take it for granted then that the rounds of the year would keep uh, keep turning. That the that let's say that the um, the, the sun would come back. <laughs> yes, and that things would grow again, and there would be food. Um, and at winter solstice, they felt that they needed to um, light fires and, and, and candles and have various rituals to, to um, encourage the, uh, the, the, the earth to, to bloom again um, and, and the days to get longer. And, um, and so because we now know that this uh, cycling around the sun uh, is what happens and that probably will continue to happen uh, at least I've heard in some estimates for a few billion years so it's so we don't have to worry a lot about one thing we uh, can't screw up yeah right um, you know it's in a way we've lost that humility uh, in the in, in the context of of uh, the world of nature uh, and and the cosmos and uh so these events are a way that we can kind of wake up for at least a short time to the fact that we have this relationship with the sun and we are part of an amazing uh, relationship with our galaxy, the Milky Way, which in itself is part of a group of galaxies, which in in turn are parts of, um, you know, what I've heard is billions of galaxies. So it's so vast that uh, it, it's very hard to for our small human minds to comprehend. But um, it, it 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 these are turning points of the year, and I think great times for reflection um, and. This event is really, the, we do it in the morning uh, to welcome the first sunrise of the summer, to also kind of experience the, 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 the great promise uh, of the summer and to feel uh, some fullness of heart uh, in contrast to the, all the things that, that, that would keep us... Uh, you know, anxious and distraught uh, if you happen to read a newspaper today. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That that was exactly what I was thinking when you're, you know, speaking that we're amongst a cluster of galaxies, which is amongst uh, billions more, and it's all expanding. My, my thought was, so what are we worrying about? <laughs> <laughs> um, there... No, I, there, I mean, it's a very good point. I think that there is something to be said to be to be able to resonate on a larger perspective enables us to have um, maybe a little more um, kind of tolerance for what's um, 
what's happening. Um, uh, in, ter- in, in terms of the human expor- experience, we have been here a very short time compared to all of the other species that still survive on Earth. And uh, among the 15 or million or however many species there are, because they're not sure, uh, we are the youngest. And um, we're barely into our adolescence. And because we've been, we've been uh, blessed or cursed, as you look, whichever you choose, however you choose to look at it, with this amazing cerebral cortex that makes us so creative and so destructive also, um, we tend to think that we're special and, 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 and uh, that we have some dispensation maybe among all the species to uh, uh, do what we want and to live uh, in, in a ever in a progressive way. Um, and yet, uh, we're destroying our home, which no species that has survived uh, has ever done. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're uh, in many ways, quite, quite deaf, dumb, and blind um, to what's, what's happening and what we're doing. And so the creatures, to me, can can offer us lessons, and uh, and these these amazing times of year uh, can um, can give us a, a deepening perspective to uh, to this uh, miraculous universe that we live in. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end it on. Um, always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks Thank you, David. Yeah. And, and, and likewise, and, uh, I wish you well with all your music making and, and, uh, and all that you're doing, and I hope that we get to see you at one of these uh, celebrations. Oh, yeah. I don't want to miss this one, so I hope to see you there. All okay. right. Well, enjoy right. the day. And you too. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Right. Bye.